You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. USIP is delighted to host this hybrid event on the role of women leaders in the political transitions that are underway in the Horn of Africa. And we are very pleased that we're able to convene this discussion in support of the 2023 Summit for Democracy. It's an honor to welcome two wonderful women to our discussion. Filson Abdi, who is the founder of the Horn Peace Institute and the Nabad Project, and Fauzia Abdi Ali, who is the president of Horn of Africa Group within Women in International Security and the chair of Sisters Without Borders. We're also honored to be joined by Ambassador Mike Hammer, the US Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa. The role that women leaders are playing in the Horn is inspiring and deeply important. In Sudan, women were at the forefront of the historic transition in 2019 to civilian government, and they remain leaders of democratic efforts to forge new agreements, to define security priorities, and to strengthen the role of communities in future transitions. In Ethiopia, Women are leading countrywide calls for peace and are at the forefront of efforts to build bridges between divided communities. In South Sudan, women are leading discussions on constitutional and political reform, and they're forging new ways to support survivors of violence and conflict-related sexual violence. In Kenya, women like Josephine Ikuru, who was awarded USIP's 2021 Women Building Peace Award. This is an international award that's given annually by the Institute to an exceptional woman peace builder. Women like Josephine are working at the community level to forge agreements that end violence over scarce resources. Across the whole horn, women are joining Sisters Without Borders, the extraordinary network which started in Kenya, which Fauzia leads, that brings women together to prevent violent extremism in their communities. During today's discussion, we hope to focus on the role that women across the Horn are playing in promoting peace and democracy, but also to focus on the efforts that are still needed to ensure that women participate fully in all aspects of peace building, all aspects of decision making, and all aspects of governance. It's now my privilege to welcome Ambassador Michael Hammer, the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa. Ambassador Hammer served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo from 2018 to 2022 and has held a number of distinguished posts during his three decades of public service, including Senior Vice President of the National Defense University and Deputy Commander of NDU's Eisenhower School. Ambassador Hammer also served as the U.S. Ambassador to Chile and as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. Ambassador Hammer, with your permission, allow me to hand the floor to you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Liz, Elise, and uh, Susan for inviting me to come uh, to 
this discussion, which is very important on behalf of the Biden administration, promoting the role of women in leadership and in all walks of life is a priority. And I just arrived back this morning from Addis and had seen that you were doing this event, so asked to join just very briefly. I don't want to take away from all the, the uh, women who are, will be participating in this, but just to uh, reflect on a couple of things. I was in uh, Addis Ababa when Secretary Blinken was there uh, just uh, a week and a half ago on the 15th of March. And I heard him very clearly in his discussions with senior Ethiopian government officials as well as in his press availability talk about the importance of the role of women uh, in the Horn, uh, specifically uh, in Ethiopia, in light of the horrific sexual uh, crimes and violence that have happened during the two-year war in northern Ethiopia that women need to have a voice. I was at an event uh, just this past week on Thursday uh, in Addis on uh, demobilization uh, and uh, the importance of disarmament and reintegration. And there, the Irish ambassador, a woman, talked very eloquently about the role of women in the Good Friday Accords as we hit 25 years since that happened. And so we know that when women are involved uh, in all walks of life, but certainly in politics and in leadership positions, that the prospects for peace uh, tend to be greater. Let me just highlight uh, a couple of programs that we have. In fact, there are programs that we do with USIP uh, to advance the role of women in the Horn. Uh, first, I would mention that through our Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, we support two projects in the Sudan. Uh, one supports women civil society leaders and their peace building initiatives related to women, peace and security in South uh, Cordovan and South uh, Darfur, giving women the skills and networks needed to play an active role in preventing and mitigating violence and conflict in their communities. The second builds uh, the capacity of women-led organizations to provide access to justice and holistic services for survivors of gender-based violence. With this knowledge and skills, women leaders are well positioned to lead community-driven initiatives that mitigate drivers of violent extremism and prevent and respond to gender-based violence. Also, GWI, as we fondly know them, uh, have partnered with USIP to implement, as Lise just mentioned, the Women Preventing Violence Extremism in Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. In South Sudan, our program focuses on gender-based violence and inclusion of women in political processes. For instance, our Human Rights Bureau supports human rights documentation in South Sudan, including documentation of gender-based violence. As for their inclusion in the political process, the U.S. government financed the travel of women South Sudanese civil society leaders to Washington for the African uh, Leader Summit that President Biden hosted in December of 2022. And also where they participate, again, in a USIP-hosted event in civil society and met with our undersecretary, uh, Azra Seya, to discuss the challenges of civil society faces operating in South Sudan. And in further partnership for USA, with USAP, we have an ongoing project called Unlearning Violence in South Sudan. In Somalia, USAID is also uh, increasing women's participation in leadership and national dialogue processes to address conflict and violent extremism in their communities. And in the lead up to Kenya's election last year, USAID, US Agency for International Development, helped increase the participation and representation of women in democratic processes and help prevent and mitigate violence against women. So I, again, don't want to take time away from the women 
who are going to be speaking today. But rest assured that on, part, on behalf of the Biden administration, certainly as I carry on my duties as a special envoy for the Horn of Africa, we highlight the role of women. I recall in doing the negotiations in Pretoria that both the government of Ethiopia's delegation and the Tigrayan de delegation had no women representatives. And a point was made of it. A point was made of it by my, my colleague, uh, Hannah Tete, the special envoy for the UN, as well as by former vice president of South Africa, Madame Pumzile. But it's not only women that need to speak out about the importance of the role of women. We men have a responsibility to do the same, and we shall. So again, thank you very much for including me just to give some brief remarks, and I wish you a very productive afternoon and session. I know that these uh, meetings are invaluable, again, to encourage and to support and to promote uh, women leadership on key issues like peace and, uh, and, and conciliation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Hammer, for your leadership uh, and your words of encouragement and the continued support of the administration uh, in the Horn of Africa and also on women's leadership. And thank you for, for being here today. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Susan Stigant. I'm director of the Africa program here at USIP, and I am delighted uh, to have the opportunity to sit on the stage with, with Filsan Abdi and to be joined by Fozia Abdi, joining us from Kenya, to have a conversation today about the Horn of Africa. Um, these two individuals are extraordinary leaders. They're extraordinary women and they are extraordinary women leaders. And I hope our conversation today will cover all of those aspects of the work that they are doing uh, in their communities, in their countries, in this terribly important region, and the implications, not just in the Horn of Africa or for Africa, but truly around the globe. And as we're thinking about broader themes of connections during this, this week leading up to the Summit for Democracy. Uh, so thank you for those who joined us in person. Thank you for those who are joining us online. You can follow us with the Twitter handle, Democracy Summit USIP. Uh, and we look forward to bringing everybody into the conversation today. So, Filsan Fozia, I, I wanted to start um, with a conversation about the Horn of Africa broadly. Uh, it's been a terribly turbulent set of years uh, with political transitions where there has been great hope, where there has been great struggle, where there has been great courage, um, and also where there has been terrible violence. And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit from each of you what, what do you think are some of the most important and powerful developments related to peace and security in the Horn? Fozia, I'm going to turn to you first. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Susan. Uh, I hope you can all hear me clearly. And thank you to USIP for convening really uh, at least a discussion around women leadership. I, I think it's critical as we go through the summit on democracy. Uh, to respond to your question around the horn and some of the pressing issues we see, I think the horn is one of the most complex and diverse regions. We, we have diversity when it comes to culture, religion, security, if you look at politics, we have countries that are uh, somewhat requiring a lot of stabilization, and then you have those that are really pursuing democratic principles and really trying to cherish their freedom uh, 
within their within their countries. Uh, the concerns I think for me that is really really pressing is the issue of food insecurity. Uh, despite the horn over the last, I think, couple of years being a space where we see uh, economic growth, I think there was a time we talked about Ethiopia as a country uh, having like a 6% GDP per capita, as in their growth was really, really uh, tremendous. And we saw countries like Djibouti, Ethiopia, uh, the same Ethiopian here in Kenya, really tackling uh, poverty and we saw reduction from 40% to uh, to 33%. Right now, with the food insecurity, the fear is we are going to go back to the challenges we used to have a couple of years ago. Uh, food insecurity is really, really a big challenge. Uh, we are facing a huge drought. This is the fifth consecutive season where we've had poor rainfall. And the persons who actually are most affected are women, children, and even the elderly. Uh, when I go into communities that I serve, uh, one of the stories I will share is there was a time a lady uh, somewhere in Kuali, and this was actually even televised, who actually took a pot and put in stones and was cooking stones for a long period of time so that they, her children could not ask for food and they would fall asleep. The level of famine, the death of livestock that we are facing, the displacement that is happening is really, really dire. And I think it's the most critical thing that we really need to uh, look into and find ways to uh, have discussions around promoting uh, how we can support uh, the horn, especially uh, uh, during this drought and, and farming season. And in particular, ensuring women are part of these conversations because conversations are happening, but not enough of of these conversations are including women, yet they are the ones who are affected the most. Thank you, Sim. Thanks, Fuzia. Um, Philson, let me turn to you. You recently served uh, as Minister of Women and Youth in the Ethiopian government and saw firsthand and upfront the policy challenges and priorities. Um, what, what do you see as some of the most critical developments uh, across the Horn? Thank you. Working. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. And thank you so much for USIP for hosting this very timely and very important event. Thank you, Ambassador Mike, for coming and sharing this platform with us as well. Bozia, I'm very pleased to virtually meet you. <laughs> Such an inspiration. Um, to, to actually go back to your question, there are many challenges and also uh, opportunities in the Horn of Africa. Uh, the challenges are um, actually excluding 50% of the population in the process of the development, which are women, and excluding them from decision-making, excluding them from um, taking leadership positions, excluding them from actually uh, being visual is um, a challenge. And as Fosia mentioned, we have the challenge of the drought, we have the challenge of instability and security. We have also um, an ethnic tension between groups and rivals and politicians, but those are rooted into a generational uh, conflicts. Um, uh, if you can see uh, through the history of conflicts, we see um, ethnic uh, divisions and ethnic politics changes every 10 years. Um, one group becomes dominant over the other, 
and, 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 and the generation that is coming next will come with a grievance and hate towards a specific group. So they wait for their time to take that revenge. And coming from Ethiopia, which is the second largest populated African co country, um, being also uh, the youngest populace, uh, we have one of the youngest pop populations, and also, in fact, the second, if I'm not wrong, uh, ethnic-wise division, we have 88 ethnic groups in the country. Each have their unique, vibrant culture, unique uh, languages. Each one of them wants respect. Each one of them to be equally represented in the political space. And what we've seen is neglection among parties who lead in the previous times of um, the country's leadership roles, that each group had their own power struggle, their own political want to be in position. And when we talk about that specific ethnic uh, element to this whole challenges in the country, we also forget minorities, which are young people, which are women. So we tend to think about the male dominance into figures of leading these ethnic powers. As Mike, Ambassador Mike mentioned, we've seen the total deliberation of exclusion of women in, in the peace process between the two parties that were um, agreeing into a process. And that is an emergence. That is something we should all be concerned about. So the ethnic element is one, but also making sure minorities are represented, not just minority ethnically, but minority when it comes to women, when it comes to young people, to have that voice of inclusion in peace processes in the development of the country. We're talking about democracy, and when we talk about democracy, it's very important to have the democrat, Democrats in a non-democratic society to, to have a sustainable democracy to be empowered, especially when we're talking about ethnic divisions, ethnic uh, struggles in a political atmosphere like Ethiopia or in the Horn of Africa. To bring that democratization, it's equally important to recognize minorities within the society. Now, I say opportunity, um, not to take too many minutes. I will go for technology. Digital technology is an opportunity. That's giving women the voice that they need. Uh, women to be seen, to be heard. Because without the transformation of digital uh, platforms, we would have not seen the work, incredible work of women out there. We, we would have not shared platforms because we would not be seen, especially in countries like ours, Horn of Africa, in the region in general, not just Horn of Africa, but in Africa as well. So that visibility to see women out there and then help support them to actually be a voice, be a leader within their society, I believe is an opportunity for Africa and uh, Horn of Africa so they get the platform that they aspire. And I believe women are the future uh, aspiration leaders. In fact, not just future, but if we want to lead within the society now, we have to put a long-term and a short-term plan to our uh, programs. And I hope this is something I will be able to see in the progress of uh, developments with, with, with uh, the ambassador's uh, programs he mentioned, with USIP and other development organizations as well. Thank you. Allow me to pick up on this point of inclusion 
And in the context of the Summit for Democracy, um, I think some people hear democracy and they assume we're talking about elections. Um, but we know that the summit is multi-dimensional. We know that the realities of building a healthy, accountable, inclusive democracy is elections and much more. And both of you have played really central roles in founding and leading organizations that are, are serving as connective tissue, as fabric working to connect together communities and countries and, and a region. And, and I was wondering, um, Phil San, I'm gonna turn to you first for this one, if you could talk a little bit about your work with the Horn Peace Institute and what, what types of priorities are emerging and how are you approaching your work with that long-term perspective of what it takes to build a healthy democracy and a healthy future for all men, women, young and old uh, across the Horn of Africa? Thank you. Um, the Horn Peace Institute is an organization that's action, advocacy and research oriented uh, we also focus on policy because I believe the fundamental core issue as Africans we face is a policy, lack of policy implementation. So we focus on policy and the gaps between implementation. We talk about women participation, we talk about women leadership, but those are lack of policies. And the reasons institutions fail is because of strong policies and implementing. We do have policies, but the way we implement them. So making sure there are no gaps between policy and implementation. Now, we are actually engaging um, in two different programs within the uh, initiatives that we are taking. Also, we have the Nabat Project, uh, which is a project or uh, prior to Horn Peace, we founded previously in Ethiopia, prior to becoming a minister. This was engaging between communities. I believe it's always important to, stand, to start from the ground. When we want peace initiatives to work, it has to be the community, community-led initiatives. So we started an initiative between Oromo and Somali community to tension down the 2017-2018 tensions, which led us to a momentum uh, agree peace agreement between the community uh, within the Oromo and Somali. And, and that kind of reverberated to opening the um, Nabat TV at that point. Now, we're trying to merge those two because Nabat is more focusing on humanitarian aspect of doing the work, while Horn Peace Institute is dealing with the crisis of policies and research-based institutionalizing and helping governments and intergovernmental and grassroots levels to understand the gaps between policy and implementation. And I am privileged to have that opportunity and experience to go as a minister, especially in charge of policies of young people, uh, youth, women, and children, which I say that's 90% of our population. <laughs> So that, that gave me the access and knowledge to actually understand what is the core problem we are facing as Ethiopians. So we're doing uh, two initiatives. One is we're trying to bring male aspect of this woman 
participation, women leadership, as Ambassador said it rightly, without the male figure, we're not going to achieve what we are looking for. So we need to empower young male at a very young age. And to do that, they need to see young um, women in, in, in also participations, but also importantly, not role models they see at home, a mother, a, a teacher in school, in health, uh, when they visit the clinics, but also to see actually women in leadership positions in other roles. So what we're doing is mentorship program. We're bringing young male and prominent women to link up so young male from a very young age can see women leadership. They can see women can lead in positions as well. We're also doing 110 young women to come uh, to specifically the peace initiative uh, that the country is uh, undergoing. Most of the time we hear specifically in this condition where we had a lot of engagement uh, with the government and also the other um, political parties, where are the women? And the answer we get is, where are the women? They ask you back. So in order to say, well, here are women, trained, ready, prepared. I don't like the word trained because it, it, it sort of sounds like they're not ready. So we use the word capacity building, making sure women are equipped in the right way that they can take their positions. We're not only making sure women are ready, but there are energized women who are ready to take the roles. And those are the specific um, initiatives we are looking into. Thank you. Posia, I'd like to turn to you um, to talk a little bit more about your work with Sisters Without Borders uh, and uh, particularly this historic peace caravan that Sisters undertook uh, and would like to invite you to, to tell um, those who are joining us today a little bit about the peace caravan and what what did you hear um, over that, that journey and what did you pull forward in terms of priorities and communities um, and then the interests of those who are making decisions to hear from, from women across the region? Fuzzy, I think your mic, your mic might be muted. Thank you, it was. Uh, so just picking up on the peace caravan and also picking up on what Filsan talked about, policy gaps uh, and inclusion in particular. The peace caravan was actually an activity that was done with Sisters Without Borders and network of really amazing women and men uh, that I chair that work every single day around uh, gender equity, gender equality, and in particular looking at transforming their communities, especially communities that are facing violent extremism. Uh, the Peace Caravan was an opportunity to have a women-led peace process that was very unique. When you look at borders in particular, when you look at borders in different countries, whether it's the Horn or anywhere in Africa, Borders are places where sometimes you find policy gaps. It's places where the policy gaps are affected because not enough information is coming from the borderlands to, uh, into formation of policy. Uh, it's spaces where statehood and diplomacy sometimes does not reach. So for us as women, we sat back and looked at how do we go out and continue to voice the importance of peace 
the importance of cohesion, the importance of collaboration and transformative thinking uh, in what we do as we look at broadly peace and security interventions. And so the caravan brought together women leaders and men uh, coming from Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. And we spent 11 days in a bus going to various places, uh, both rural and urban, stopping at marketplaces, uh, stopping at spaces that you do not sometimes find persons stopping and asking questions around how do you, as a woman and a man, want to be uh, included when it comes to broader peace and security interventions in your country and in your community. It was really a very interesting experience over the 11 days because this was purely done by women uh, who would actually engage uh, in each stop uh, and walk and talk to various segments of society, including the elderly. And what was striking to me is across the board, everyone wants to be included. And I think that's the cornerstone of democracy, that feeling that you want to be able to exert influence and you want to be able to have power around decisions that are being made on your behalf. And this resonated across all the countries. The women in particular really stood out and said, we want to be included in uh, peace committees. Sometimes we forget that we are when we look at uh, leadership, it doesn't just necessarily mean really high up at the political processes, but even the uh, spaces within our communities that are really at the lower levels that really need also to have more women uh, being engaged is also critical. And so having women come out clearly and say, we really need to be included. The second thing was the transformative thinking that was coming across. I think sometimes the perception is men do not want necessarily to step up and support women interventions at the grassroots level. And this was not the case. When we went to spaces like Zanzibar, the men were asking, how are we? How can we do better to support women at that level? And I actually echo what Philson said when they ask about where are the women, uh, and then that is echoed back, because they too want to be included. And sometimes you find that information is not getting to them, uh, for them to feel a sense of uh, including themselves in conversations around gender more broadly. Third, I think that stood out was the question around equality and equality in terms of ensuring that there's uh, economic support that is reaching uh, women, especially at the rural uh, spaces. We group women sometimes uh, and say that women in the urban setting and women in the rural setting and women within conflict zones and women where there's a, a more parity uh, all require the same things, not necessarily. It was interesting to see how women keep stepping up and saying here at the rural level, our challenges are different from those at the urban setting. They want to be able to have better economic support within the rural spaces. They are asking, why is it technology is still remaining at the urban places? We are not able to access communication even from uh, uh, that should actually be here at the rural spaces. So it was a very diverse and very interesting uh, uh, activity, which we hope we can continue to broaden uh, and do more uh, as we transversed from Uganda, commencing from Kampala all the way to crossing the ocean and going into Zanzibar. Back to you, Susan. Fazia, I'm, I'm so struck um, when I had the opportunity to sit with you and other women who were part of that, that 
Uh, in the face of violence, in the face of violent extremism, it is normal for humans to be fearful and to go to their corners uh, and to isolate themselves. And I think with the magic that has happened in, in the work that, that you are leading, uh, and that I think you're involved with too, Filsan, is that people are opening they're connecting, um, they're creating spaces, and they're reaching out. Uh, and I, I think um, I, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on how, how do people move from that normal human reaction of fear to something that extends a conversation, a dialogue, a visit, uh, a connection between a community and a decision maker that I think is absolutely the basis of not, not just peace, but, but the type of democracy that you're, you're both talking about. Fazia, do you want, would you like to start us off here? Your, your mic is muted again. So how people are moved from a, a space of fear to one where they're bold enough to speak because when you look at social contracts, for one, uh, for a long time, uh, when you look at even the political transitions more broadly, the social contracts within our communities are broken. With weak institutions and with no social contracts in place, I would actually say in some spaces there are no social contracts in space, you find that these are opportunities for people to actually uh, have uh, the, uh, security challenges such as terrorism and so on. And this actually propagates the fear. But for communities and for persons living within these spaces, not all of them ascribe to, uh, I would say, the ideologies that are found within these spaces. Most people are hopeful. When people wake up every single day, they don't wake up saying that they are waking up to conflict per se. They wake up hopeful and then something happens that uh, makes them feel that they need to step up and, and ask for their rights uh, and ask for that social contract that was supposed to be there between citizens and governments need to be honored. Uh, and that comes about especially when people finally uh, understand what human rights, their human rights are, uh, when people understand the importance of collective bargaining for one, uh, and when people truly uh, step up and want a better life for themselves. That actually takes away most of the fear that you find at the end of the day, and I'll answer it that way. Thank you. I think Fuzia put it beautifully. But I would like to add a little bit on that one because I have an experience of it, um, fear. I remember when I was serving and I was tasked to report about rape. It was about um, a decision to make. It was about um, speaking up your values and the conscious or believing in yourself or actually being muted in, in, in a system that you were part of. And if I was muted, I would, it would kill me inside. And if I took away that fear, and if I spoke for that woman, then I will be at peace with myself. Now, that didn't come with, without a cost, because then you lose your, that's what fear is, because you're losing um, a job that you loved, uh, a work that you really wanted to contribute, 
your safety. So there are many factors people will relate to fear and they would feel, um, if I do this, what are the consequences? But if we are, are, are lost with values, and this is where I'm coming with the American values, what makes it a bit different from many countries is that with your diplomacy, you add values, human values, which comes first. And um, we see that in different terms with other countries, that you might have rival in economic-wise. What distinguishes America will be the values. And, 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 and that, for us, is important, especially when we are at a stage of modernity. We're trying to come out of our way of living. And young people are fearless, but we, as a, humans, are fearful. So making sure we invest in young people, making sure young people are the center because they are the generation to take over and empowering them and making sure they, 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 they get away with the fear that it is okay to speak out, it is okay to, to dare to take a challenge uh, would be very important. But also listening, you know? With conflicts, we, we see uh, parties who are engaging with them either dictating or ordering so to take away the fear, you have to listen. You have to listen both sides because each side expects, expects you to understand them and respect them equally in, in a conflict. So listening and respecting their views. Killing each other is not respectful, but listening to what they have to say shows them respect and that can lead to more uh, opening up the space and clearing away people to, to not shy away and, and take the fear away, in my view. Wilson, I'd like to pick on the, up on this thread about the, the courage of young generations and then also the acknowledgement that there's fear, right? And those two things can coexist. Um, and uh, Fozia, I, I, it strikes me that we talk a lot about the young, the large young population on the continent, the, the youth bulge, which is kind of a terrible, a terrible term. And some people for a long time talked about it as a threat. Now people are talking about the, the great opportunity. Um, and it strikes me that there's, there's important dynamics related to technology, related to people's identity, related to how they interact with culture and arts. Um, and I know that there are intergenerational realities that impact um, on, on movements towards peace and democracy, and also specifically with women. And, and I wonder, Fauzia, can I turn to you for a moment to hear a little bit about how, how you see these intergenerational dynamics and how you're grappling it, with it in the work that, that you're leading? Um, thank you, Susan. So the intergenerational dynamics, I think one of the first things that always crops up is technology and the way they are embracing technology and young people are amazing because they are embracing technology. And I think a digitalization and looking at this is the month of women and our theme was on digitalization, I think it's really critical. And I think uh, from even what Filson said, it, it allows for a wider voice and a wider contribution from different people. Stepping away from digitalization uh, and looking at the youth badge and the positivities and the negativities we talk about, especially in Africa, uh, I think one of the critical things when we step back is to look at 
beyond digitalization. Despite there being a larger number of young people and the fact that I think by 2050, we should have like 25% of the world's population being in Africa, our identities are becoming smaller and smaller despite the globalization. You find we are now grouping into smaller and smaller groups and we are trying to make our identity within the same. When you put in the element of digitalization, the issue of social media and how persons are interacting with social media, this is really taking away from our social cultural way of living as well. Uh, people are interacting less because uh, when we engage, for instance, to give an example within communities and you bring parents to sit in a room with their children, they will tell you, I cannot talk to my child. They are always online. They are going into social media spaces and I cannot connect with them anymore. Uh, they're taking away uh, that space even during the dinner table from us to conversing and I have to force uh, my child to stop looking at, at their at their mobile phone. But when you ask a young person, when you're on that social media space, how do you feel when you're on that space? They feel a sense of connection. They tell you I have a thousand friends, but they're not people they have met with. Uh, and are engaging with on a day to day because they have really lowered their identity to be one that is only within the space which is online. So within Sisters Without Borders, we embrace the intergenerational aspect and we bring in, yes, the young people to be able to um, uh, also have an impact more broadly on, on peace and security and the interventions we do. And they also step away from just the digitalization space and the challenges it causes or the, the great stuff that it does into one where we are promoting a space for what I would call mental fitness. This is the mental issue, health issue. Because we have those who were, uh, were actually impacted by Garissa University, we have those who are survivors of Garissa University. This is their opportunity to step up uh, and, uh, and talk about their stages of healing so that people can learn the importance of healing people can learn the importance of trauma in, in itself facing that and being resilient enough uh, to come out of it or work towards healing uh, and how we can use that within the space that we live in uh, especially within the conflict spaces that we we sometimes find in ourselves and so the generation that we have is one that is open to talking about healing and not just talking about identities around digital, the digital movement. Yes, they embrace it and I have to really be clear about that, but we want to step away from just one, I would say, binary look when it comes to young people. Secondly, it's also we take away from the step that the young people are our future and so we work with them because they are our future. No, they are here now and their contributions are really, really critical. They see things in a different way from a different generation, which is a much older generation. And so they can be able to contribute uh, in a different way. Uh, to give you an example on gender-based violence alone, on the issue of gender-based violence, gender-based violence is not one that only affects the elderly. It also affects young people. And so having them being participating in creating knowledge about the implications of gender-based violence, also talking about if they are victims of gender-based violence and they're comfortable about talking about it, it helps with healing and also uh, enabling people in the community to see someone who looks like them, who's their age mate, 
uh, talking about these issues and maybe opening up themselves and sharing uh, their own challenges, uh, be it from whether it is in a school setting or within uh, the community itself or within the household. So it's really, really critical to make sure that we have the intergenerational aspect. I want to add in the issue of the balance between the elders or what I call the young at heart <laughs> Uh, and the youth. And I think it's really, really critical. When you go into communities now, there's a really big disbalance. And when you talk about really sensitive topics, that disbalance is even seen even more. And so when we come back to the discussion around democracy and having young people's voices included, it is important for those who are actually uh, much older to step back and also allow the young people to come in and speak their truth and speak about what they want to see within their communities because social contracts include also young people. Inclusivity means not just the gender aspect, but also the age uh, aspect as well. And so it's a critical uh, cornerstone uh, of, of when we look at democracy more broadly. Thank you. Thanks, Fazia. I think in, in Washington, often if we're talking about competition in the horn, we're thinking of global competition or strategic rivalry. And you've brought a whole other dimension of what's taking place in communities, in countries, and, and in cultures, um, both to divide people but also connect them in together. I, I'd like to bring in uh, those who are following us online and those in the audience. Um, as just as a reminder, you can use the hashtag Democracy Summit USIP, and there are some question cards being circulated around. Um, so we want to involve you in this this conversation as democratically as possible. Um, before we we open it up, though, I, I wanted to turn to this theme of the Summit for Democracy. Um, this is really a time for recommitment by, by the United States, a recommitment for partnership with other countries, um, and an activation of organizations that are working on various dimensions of democracy. Um, and as two leaders from the Horn of Africa, I wonder um, if you have some advice for how the United States should be thinking about its partnership towards peace um, and towards democracy. Filsan, I'll turn to you first. Thank you. That's a very important question. Because when we talk about democracy, it's about inclusion. And without the inclusion and participation of um, groups, young people, women, we cannot address much. We have crisis, crisis of food insecurity, as a world, we have crisis of climate change, we have crisis of democracy, because uh, what we're seeing in the world is the process of oligarchy, the process of uh, dictators trying to create their own parts within the world or create their own friends or allies within the world. So that's a very fundamental part of I believe the Summit for Democracy and engaging and bringing countries that align with the democracy values. Now, when we say democracy, it's not just the United States uh, concept or just uh, all excluded to the United States. It's a universal language. It should be something we all speak as a, uni as a universe, uh, something we all communicate equally. Those come under human values, 
those come under um, respecting humanity itself within diplomacy and not forgetting we all are humans. Because as I mentioned earlier, what makes the United States the United States is the values it stands for regardless of the diplomacy, regardless of how it interacts with countries, those values always come first. And those are the values of the American people, the taxpayers. So coming to the concept of Africans or in the Horn of Africa, we hope, and I don't have the solutions or all the answers, but I'm trying to contribute my understanding, is that we have a generation that is already taken by um, China or Russia due to influences. Countries, I don't believe, that have values they stand for. In their way, they have their values. But when it comes to humanity, and when it comes to suffering of people, I believe those values are important. So when we are aligning ourselves as a nation, we have to go for value. So if we're going to stand with the United States, how are we going to stand with the United States? And how is the United States also approaching us? So to, 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 to create that difference, which is the generation that exists and the coming generation of young Africans or young leaders emerging, what are the steps that needs to be taken by the United States? And what, what can they support the young generation? Uh, not just the United States, but the international community as well as the Europeans. I believe personally, it has to be opening the doors and not closing those doors. Engaging with the future young leaders listening to them, creating that balance between those existing and those emerging is very crucial and very important. Thank you. Thanks, Philson. You, you remind me that um, Afrobarometer that does public opinion research across Africa consistently finds that African citizens want accountable government, right? So this isn't something that's external. It's something that is, is owned. It, it may not look exactly the same, um, but there is that clear demand for it. Fozia, your, your advice uh, to the United States as people are thinking about the, the summit for democracy um, and, and the US role in, in peace and democracy and, and supporting democracy in the Horn of Africa. Uh, thank you. So my advice, I will start with an African uh, proverb. It says, uh, however long the night, dawn will break. And it's a very interesting proverb to me because for a long time, we, we have uh, engagements around a, a push towards women inclusion in political process, uh, more broadly gender equity and equality. Uh, we've seen uh, various leaders stepping up and saying, I am a feminist and really coming out in global uh, spaces and saying they are feminists. But when you come down to uh, at the end of it, after all the rhetoric that has been put across, there's still not enough that is going into ensuring uh, that we are pushing for more women in political spaces. We, we are looking at leadership more broadly to include women. Uh, so as the U.S. moves towards what I would call development diplomacy, because we see a lot of scaling up of financing, we are seeing a lot of discussions around uh, policy dialogues and harmonization. Uh, as we push for those inclusive politics, is to ask that critical question, where are the women? 
and not just any women. Where are the women who are rightfully supposed to be in the spaces of development? If we're talking about anything related to development interventions, where are women when we're working within the horn in countries that are, are conflict-ridden and we're looking towards peace processes? Where are the women? How can we better engage with them? When we're broadly even looking at security in itself, where are the women? Is something that we keep needing to ask so that we don't have to continuously wait for that dawn and to have that dawn happen now. Thank you. Thanks, Fazia. We have some great questions from those joining us in the room and those joining us online. And with your permission, I'd like to read out a few of them and then turn back um, Philsan and Fauzia to both of you to share share your thoughts. Um, so I think there's, there's a set of questions that are really around uh, the dynamics that are impacting on women's leadership. Um, and one which uh, poses, what are, what are some of the social norms that might hinder women's leadership and participation in, in peace processes and democracy. Uh, from maybe the other side of the coin, how can the visibility of women peace champions be enhanced in conflict and polarizing environments? What, what advice would you have for that? Um, and then similarly, if you're thinking about political transitions, what, what are the entry points in, in very concrete sorts of ways, locally, nationally, or regionally, where where women's leadership can can best be plugged in and and shape those decisions. I know that's a big a big grouping. So, Fosia, would you like to start us off? Okay. So. I will look at the political transitions and entry points, both locally, regionally, uh, to shape some of these decisions. I think it actually has to start from the political level of those who are even sent in to have discussions during the political transitions and the conflicts that probably arise after. If you look at all the envoys, and I'm uh, including Ambassador Hammer here. They are all men. <laughs> we now have an ambassador from China as well, who is also male. And I think uh, I'm looking forward to a day when we're looking at the horn uh, and anywhere uh, uh, as well in future that we have ambassadors who are also female who are coming in to discuss uh, within our communities. That I think would give us like role models that we look up to. Uh, but we are thankful of Ambassador Haman, how he too is championing uh, uh, women in, in most of the conversations he's having. Uh, the, the other entry point I think which is, is critical is to uh, always step back and ask, do the people within the spaces that we are engaging, are they really uh, persons we want to have within those spaces that we're engaging, do they qualify? Uh, to be in those spaces, because sometimes tokenism happens quite a bit, and you don't necessarily have the right voices and the right personalities within the spaces that are going through transitions. Uh, consequently, it's also important to look at the institutions themselves, because with weak institutions, you will end up having challenges in, in the long run, uh, where you have uh, citizens and, and persons who then step out and, and say 
that they are not necessarily favoring what was the result if it is an issue of elections uh, if it's an issue of discussions around any uh, transformation that is happening if they don't trust in that institution and the persons within those institutions it becomes really really hard and the bottom line at the end of the day is to look at the main driver which is the social contract and i keep pushing this because it really is the main driver of why we have so many challenges within the region if we are able to really uh, aggressively sit back and say we really want to address this this social contract and ensure that we uh, are making sure that trust is being rebuilt uh, and ensuring the voices of civil society is still respected because we've seen within this region that these dwindling voices of civil society uh, and combining this with the question around visibility of peace champions is the fact that even women peace builders themselves face a lot of challenges, uh, including threats to their lives. And so making sure that we're working actively uh, to protect the women peace builders, and of course the men peace builders as well, uh, in order for us to have transitions and uh, discussions that actually can transcend into um, a region that is less fragile, uh, into one that is, is really stable and, and prosperous at the end. Please, yes, welcome. I'll just add a few points on, um, I think Fuzi answered all of the questions, but I'll try to add on championing the women that are actually championing. In not just, this is not just in Africa, but anywhere. We, we are facing conflicts everywhere, and there are courageous women out there who are trying efforts effortlessly trying to contribute to their communities as well as the continent, uh, each continent they, they're part of peacefully and bringing communities together and they face so many challenges as Fuzia, Fuzia put it rightly. And this challenge is the priority number one is having lack of security, making sure they have the space to feel safe that they can raise their voice for peace. Peace is a universal language. And if you feel threatened for speaking up for what is right, it becomes a challenge for others to follow suit. So making sure those women can create a network, and not just an organization, but a chain of network among different uh, women across continents, so they can become their each other's shoulder, a supporter, a sister, just like Sisters Without Borders, to make sure they are echoing if anything happens to one of their sisters who's out there to promote peace. So that network of uh, women champions is very crucial and very important. The other is political transition and accountability. Uh, if we want a genuine peace and sustainable peace, there must be in any process accountable to their um, part in engaging in conflict, as well as making sure there's a justice delivered. And without women's participation, there's no justice. So oftentimes men push women away from decision-making or peace process tables because they are afraid for the commitment that I'm not saying all men, we have many wonderful men who champion for transitional justice, but quite few would actually prefer male figures in those spaces because they are afraid to be held accountable. They are afraid to be asked those 
serious questions in the table. Who is accountable for these crimes? So women dare to ask those questions. They understand and relate to the pain of other women. Women bear the burdens of any conflict in any society, and that should be recognized by all, not just by giving a political tokenism of a space, but actually making sure they have the space because they are actually genuinely serious about delivering justice. And if we want to see justice, women's voice must be included. Thank you. So there's a really interesting set of questions about women in leadership roles, and I think uh, reflect an acknowledgement of how difficult it can be to be holding a senior level position and the expectations that are set uh, and, and perhaps uh, some of the unfair expectations um, and the challenges that often arise where there becomes a divide between or the perception of a, of a divide between women who sit in high-level positions and women who are in communities. And, and I wonder if either of you would be willing to share any of your perspectives, your insights, or your experiences uh, on this question. Fazia Filsan is deferring to you to start us off. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I, I thought she was going to start, but it's okay. I'll, I'll try. Women in leadership and the difficulties and expectations between the two. I think it comes about, uh, number one, because we don't understand women <laughs> uh, and where women lie. Uh, I, I could say this from the beginning, like we sometimes group all women into one box and say, uh, women from urban, rural, etc., are all uh, into one. And so their leadership style will be the same. What they care about will be the same. And what expectations they have uh, within various roles will, will also be the same. But women are very diverse uh, uh, in nature. The second reason is perceptions that we carry, the unconscious biases and the conscious biases we carry, uh, be it from our cultural perspective, be it from the interactions we had uh, in our lives that we bring forth when we are looking at the perception of women in leadership. And I think this then makes it so difficult for women sometimes when they step up in and say, I want to be part of a political process, you find they end up getting the, the most, I would say if it is online, they would get the most hate uh, online and messages coming online of hate. But this is built from perceptions of someone else through their, their own lens of what they see. Uh, be it from a cultural perspective or the environment they are in. Uh, and so it makes it even difficult for, for the woman to step into her role uh, as, as a woman leader. And we see this often. What I normally say is at the end of the day, yes, the challenges exist, but you have to give the opportunity for women to, to be in these political processes, to be part of peace building, to be part of community, um, um, committees that that exist because at the end of the day they bring in a different perspectives they will talk about education they will talk about the necessity of healthcare 
issues such as maternal health care, for instance. So they will bring up some of the uh, issues that sometimes you not necessarily get uh, if you only have one uh, set of uh, of um, of gender that is, is part of uh, of that leadership process. So it's not to say that, yes, there are difficulties, but doesn't mean we have to stop uh, and not include women. Uh, I will actually be categorical here. We have actually improved. We have more, uh, I would say, interest in having more women in political processes. I see a lot more conversation pushing for uh, women within political processes. I think when it comes to leadership more broadly, there are other nuances that also need to be looked into, uh, such as the financing aspect. You may want women to be uh, at least better represented, but if you're not putting in the financing to support, to have more women within your political parties, to support women within institutions to go higher up in ranking, especially if you look at security sphere, then you're just putting out a rhetoric that we are here to support women and women in leadership, but we're not necessarily uh, coming out and putting in the money and even that political goodwill at the end of the day to push for this to happen. And so it's a, it's a delicate balance that we need to make sure that we have as we look at whether it's at the community level or uh, at much higher levels. Thank you. Well, from my experience, becoming um, the first Ethiopian woman to establish the first television station and becoming the first Somali Ethiopian to become a minister as a female. Uh, you can imagine the heavy weight on your shoulders and at the age of 28. So you have the age element, you have the woman element, and you have the ethnic element because um, I come from a region that has been marginalized for decades. I come from a region that was not able to participate fully politically and engage due to conflicts. Um, so representing all that and coming to the political uh, table or, or reaching to, to, to that position by itself was um, an invigorating moment. And the challenges I faced would come from the ethnic element of it. Oh, um, she's a Somali. Is she even an Ethiopian um, to, to actually be undermined because of your ethnic background? Um, you would face the element of age because you're young and as a nation um, like my country, it's very rare to see people like me coming to position. So when you hold all those uh, ticking bars of is, is it right to a point, by itself is a challenge, to overcome that by itself is a challenge. And on top of that, when you are in a position, uh, in, in too diff difficult position, to stand out and, and actually work for what you stand for, because when you're a minister of agriculture and there's a climate crisis, you deal with those crises. When you're a minister of finance, you deal with the economical crisis. But when you're a minister of women, you deal with the women issues. So doing my job would have, um, I didn't realize, would cost me a lot uh, by engaging, um, speaking up for those I represented in the table. So the challenges for women are very, very um, broader, but putting it in my context. But, and also, um, 
uh, communities, especially when you don't see many communities coming forward, when you're not used to communities like myself coming to the table and, and leading from, from those perspectives, is by itself a challenge. But I'll come to the point Fuzia said, which is also amazingly striking and, and, and touched me, was um, my community. Now, like I said, I, I'm the first female minister from my community. And the way they received me was absolutely amazing to, to actually acknowledge me, accept me as their leader, to respectfully listen. Uh, I was in Minnesota last week, and I would be sitting with a room of 50 uh, male representatives, and they're all male, and I'm the only female sitting there, and it feels awkward. Uh, and, but the respect they're giving you, men of culture, men of religion, men of um, hierarchy as we have as a community, but all to come and to listen to your perspective and understanding, to, to actually gain that and give you back, to actually give a platform for a woman was an eye-opening. And to see that they are actually um, changing to somewhat, to understand women are important and women should take the lead. Was, 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 was very um, eye-opening. And then later I met almost 500 men, which was even more than the 50, so you can imagine how I felt. But, but that is all adding up to the work that has been done, adding up to, to your values, adding up to the leadership you show, and not a, just women coming to the front, but what kind of women are we bringing to the forefront is very important as well. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing those experiences. And it strikes me that in, amidst incredibly complex and complicated challenges and realities, some of the most simple things uh, can translate into that sense of, of support and encouragement that is absolutely needed. Um, I'd like to close us out with uh, a set of questions that relate to policy. Uh, so we're focused this week on the Summit for Democracy, uh, but just a few months ago, uh, the United States hosted the US-Africa Leaders Summit. And, and we have a set of questions about how, how can, what can be done to really hold leaders accountable for the commitments that they made during that US-Africa Leaders Summit, particularly around women's leadership and sustaining women's leadership in this peace and security conversation. Phil San, we're going to turn to you first for this one. Um, thank you. Policies, the initial start or engagement of building institutions. If we want to see stronger institutions, we need policies in place. Now, I'm not saying countries don't have policies, but are they implementing those policies? And this is where the relationship comes in. This is where your relationship with the country comes in. Um, I'm sure the United States uh, support comes from the country's taxpayers. So they have their values and those values drive the policies of the United States. And those policies are what makes you uh, want to contribute to countries you believe you align your values with and contribution within the society. So when we are doing va uh, policies, and I'm a very proud African, is that we have our own unique way of doing things. We do not expect to be dictated. We do not expect to be uh, brought ideas because our people are very curious about things. Uh, but also understanding, and this comes to the listening part, and understanding what each 
country can bring to the table and what their policies are lacking through experience, through your own experiences and what can be gained through that exchange and how can that support be um, sort of aligned with the ideologies that you are trying to bring and promote. And that brings to policy because without policy, you cannot enforce anything, you cannot educate anything, you cannot have a partnership in, in, a, in, a, in a country. So with, with interactions, policy is crucial, but how are those policies going to implement it? And what are those policies as well should be clear to the community because those are again coming back to them. So if you're, if you're, if you're saying women leadership should be a crucial um, among this specific areas, um, and we expect to see women uh, inclusion in, in those areas, and a country says, of course, but how are you going to do it? How are, how are you going to implement in your policies? Because if it's not institutionalized, then it's not going to be implemented. And to institutionalize it, we need strong set of policies to, to, to start with. And this brings us to, for example, I could be a minister of a specific area, let's say the Minister of Women, and there's a policy we're talking about, but we're not institutionalizing that policy yet. It's just a talk. If I leave the position, you come in, you're still in that position of policy talk, the new person that comes in will not understand what policy you are trying to talk about because there's no framework, there's no laying foundation to that specific topic, institutionalizing that topic. So it's very important to make policies implemented and also making sure the gap between implementation and policy are interlinked, looked at, starting from a grassroots level. Thank you. Thanks, Philson. Uh, I think an important message to uh, those who support peace in the United States as well uh, and who are watching the implementation of those commitments. Fosia, over to you. Okay, so on policy post the Africa Leaders Summit and how we can hold the leaders accountable. What resonates is one of the key messages that even while in the US that was coming through is it was about the voices of people and making sure that what is actually going to be implemented is uh, is what the voice of the people and what people want. It wasn't, it wasn't about what would be imposed. And that was very clear uh, as the message coming from the U.S. to their to their African leaders, that it was about partnership and listening to each other. Uh, I think to bring it down to the practicalities of it, I think... Uh, and as we move towards the development diplomacy that we see more and more happening, especially within the Horn, is to remember actions speak louder than words at the end of the day. Policies are sometimes very theoretical. They have statements of things that need to be done. At the end of the day, they must be done. There must be some actions around what is envisioned uh, to be happening in the different spheres, or whether it is on economics, whether it is in political, even on environmental. At the end of the day, what is critical is the action. And so here is where it's really critical to broaden the stakeholders, and in particular, ensuring voices of civil society uh, and women leaders, whether be peace builders or women leaders within the civil society space, are also included to, to become part of that accountability and transparency 
transparency process because civil society would end up providing that monitor, that critical voice that is needed to make sure that the leaders are, are being held accountable at the end of the day. And so for me, the next push to, is to see how to widen the different stakeholders and ensure civil societies are still critical in every conversation that is happening when it is brought down per country as the uh, financial discussions are happening, as the policy harmonization is happening. How are uh, constantly asking the question, who is involved, who are the stakeholders, and in particular, where are the women uh, and the categories of women we have uh, uh, in order to be able to ensure that at the end of the day there is implementation happening. Um, Fozia, Filsan, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and for the conversation that we've had today. Uh, I have to say, when we were thinking about the title for this event, uh, there was some debate about whether it should just be about peace and security and democracy amidst political transitions in the Horn, and not necessarily a specific reference to women and women's leadership, uh, because today we've covered a whole range of topics, um, and I think it's worth making the point that these aren't women's issues, right? These are issues that matter for the future of the Horn of Africa that match, matter more broadly in the global context, whether it's the questions of technology and connection, whether it's the questions of global power competition, whether it's questions about food insecurity, um, these are all interconnected. And your voices, your work on this is incredibly important. So thank you for, for your generosity. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined us today in person, online. Ambassador Hammer, thank you for being with us here. Um, we're really delighted to do this in support of this week's Summit for Democracy. We're also grateful to the Global Coalition for Democracy for coordinating all of the summit side events. Uh, we hope you'll continue to, to join and follow over the week. Um, Filsan Fazia, wishing you courage in your leadership, and we look forward to listening uh, to what you're continuing to say and to watching the work that you're continuing to do and uh, to being good partners and taking that forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.